Welcome everyone to another week of Investors Gallery. My name is Presley and I am part of Dimensional Capital here in Houston. We are a multifamily investment and development firm. My partner is uh, the attorney, Melvin Felby as well. And we do apartment stuff to be as technical as possible. So welcome to another version or another week of Investors Gallery. And for those who are accidentally finding this podcast or YouTube video or whatever way you're finding this on the interwebs, the reason why we call this is an Investor Gallery is because everything behind me I built with my two bare hands by myself. And obviously, this is my office. But on the other side is the art gallery that I built. And the running joke is one day we'll do an actual video in the art gallery, but it's never finished. My office is not finished, uh, but it's good enough to do uh, a podcast in. So we want to bring people who you would not normally have access to. And this week, I not only have someone who is pretty out of reach for the normal person, but happens to be uh, also a good friend of mine. Um, should I address you as Tony or Anthony? How should we start? Tony's good with me. I feel like everyone, ins- no one's ever insisted Anthony. Everyone's like, oh, I have a cousin named Tony. So I just go. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you being on, Tony. Uh, take Ooh. us from the beginning. Let us know what you do and how you got into it. You're oh, actually maybe. one of the first people I have on that um, is not deeply entrenched in real estate. Yeah. So you'll have a lot of people probably interested in what you have to say. I like to keep things uh, interesting. Variety is a spice of life, as they say. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my name is Anthony Lampy. Most people call me Tony. <clears throat> I'm the owner of X-Factor Consultants. We are a technology consulting firm. Uh, we're currently working with, with yourself and Melvin on a number of projects here. So, uh, But yeah, we um, I'll talk about the business first, I mean, what we do, and then I'll sort of wind back to my own background, okay. how I got here, if that works. Uh, yeah, so uh, we are a tech consulting firm, which is uh, means a few things. We do a lot of strategy development for businesses and entrepreneurs, um, specifically regarding the kinds of technology they currently use or would like to use. So it's a lot of evaluating the tech they already have. Is it working for them? Is it not? Um, sometimes something looks like a tech problem, but it's actually a training problem. So we try and help people understand their process, what their goals are, and figure out the difference of, of what needs to be corrected. Uh, but we don't just run our mouths for a living, although I love to hear my own voice. Uh, we also do the work too. So we do our own design and our own development, which is is good for the clients because then we're not just shopping it out to someone else where you know we have no oversight of what's happening. Uh, but also it keeps us involved in the process. It keeps us sharp so that if we're going to talk about something, we we can back it up with you know some results. Uh, and what those results look like are in a few different spaces. We're in the web and app development worlds. Uh, we're also in the video production and e-learning worlds. So uh, we have a good amount of variety in the kinds of work that we do, and we pull talent from all over the place. A lot of times we're looking for people who are actively working in their respective disciplines, and we pull them in for specialized projects. You know, we've talked to guys from really all the major tech companies, state agencies, you name it. Uh, yeah, but coming on seven years of business now. Very exciting. Of course, as I drink, it goes down the road. But <laughs> so um, let's go backwards. Yeah. How did you get into tech? Oh, man. Uh, so I got into software development, specifically games, uh, video game development was where I began. Uh, and I got interested in that when I was very young. Um, summer after fifth grade, I uh, got signed up for a summer camp. It's my parents' idea originally. Uh, and it was one of the the first summer camps in the country that was trying to do programming instruction for kids. That's sort of uh, standard fare these days. Everyone and their mother has some like teach kids to code program. But I mean, this was you know 20 years ago. It was a very different story that the tools that were around were very limited to do any, any kinds of, specifically game development. Um, you know, things like Unreal Engine or, or uh, you know, Unity Engine that are free now, whereas, you know, back then you had to pay a license of some kind. Some of them were in the millions of dollars. So you just didn't have access to any of this stuff. So you just Mm -hmm. had to get, yeah, they were really geared towards studios. And if you were in a studio, then tough luck. Um, So it was a very different industry at that point. Uh, But I was very young and I was very excited about this. And I took what I could find. I started in this summer camp and I just, I fell in love with it immediately. uh, And I just ran with it. Um, And I stuck with it into middle school and into high school. Um, 
by then I was already doing contract work while my parents were signing for me. <laughs> um, and I was just super interested in all levels of it, you know? So I, I had always been an artistic kid. So I, I loved the design element of making games, um, but I loved code as well. Um, it really is another language. You're, you know, you're communicating with, with a computer, you're giving it instructions, it's giving you results and you can create things in a computer that you can't see in the real world. So it was just really, for a creative kid who wanted to see things in front of him that couldn't be made out here. It was, it was perfect, you know? Uh, so it, it, it was something I, I really loved and passionate about it. Uh, I ended up getting my degree in game design and I'm from Connecticut originally. There is no games industry really to speak of up there at all. Um, the Northeast in general doesn't really have, it used to have a little more, there were a few notable studios in the Northeast. Um, Rockstar who makes Grand Theft Auto still has a presence up there. Um, but for the most part, you really have to go to the West Coast uh, or you have to go to Texas. Uh, and I have family in Texas. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, those are really your options these days. Like Boston, New York have some, but they're not they're not working on projects of this scale that you see in California or in Texas. Um, so, uh, so I made a decision freshman year of high school. I knew I was going to be leaving uh, Connecticut because I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so I, I, you know, finished my degree, uh, and it, it was kind of a formality for me, I guess, like a thing about games is, uh, it's all about what you can prove that you can do because it's all about results at the end of the day. It's like, we'll make this work in order to make it work, get out. We'll find someone else. Right. Um, so the degree really, for most people that go in it, it's, it's more of a formality. If you want to be a developer, then having a, a comp side degree is very valuable. You know, you can negotiate a higher pay rate or something, but but you can build a ton of the skills on your own, really. A lot of people like get in the modding world, the mod games that exist, and that's led to careers for people. So there's a lot of different places that people come from, um, especially in like the 80s and 90s when there were really no standards for for how you hired in games some of the stories i've heard over the years of ways that guys have gotten jobs are amazing <laughs> but uh mine was just uh i i made a ton of content when i was in college my my game design professor told me that i had i'd created more content than my entire graduating class combined which was <laughs> wow. yeah uh, i tested out of uh five of my classes so it was, yeah, it was just something I was doing all the time. It, it made sense that I was, I was going to be able to, to find work in the, in the field. And I did. I, I found a ton of great projects that I got to work on, um, most of which never got finished and I actually can't talk about. Uh, a little dirty secret of the games industry. Yeah, the attrition rate for game projects is very high. 66% um, of all game projects to get started never get finished. 66%. Yeah. So when you're buying that? a game, you're not, you're not just buying the game, you're buying the game plus all the games that didn't get finished that they spent money on. Uh, something a lot of people don't realize. Um, yeah. But that is because there's a few reasons. Uh, one is there are a lot of games that seem great on paper. The design sounds great. You build a prototype. It looks cool. You put a bunch of resources into it and then you realize it's actually not that fun. But you don't know that until you spend a year and a half building the thing. And that's just a practical reality of working in the industry is, you know, there's a ton of trial and error. Uh, and that's kind of shifted to a degree because these days we've gotten to a point of really formulaic game development where we, I don't, Call of Duty has been produced annually for decades now. And it's yeah, there's a formula they have and whenever they try and steer too far from the formula, people don't like it and they slap them back into place. You know, so um, suddenly doing the same thing they did in the early 2000s is considered innovative because there's been entire generations that have grown up playing different. That's so old now that doing the, the old thing is now new again, you know, wow. uh, but but it's still very formulaic. Like there, these are, you know, games where you build them as a service. There's an expected level of revenue that you're going to get just because it's your brand. So it's a lot harder to fail with established franchises, but it's also a lot harder to do anything interesting or different. Um, so it's, you know, it's sort of, you've gained with one hand and you've lost with another. Uh, yeah, but uh, games is a really cool industry to work in. It's by far the most complicated form of software development, I would say, personally. Uh, just because you combine every discipline on the planet that you can imagine. You, know, you have designers, you have artists, you have musicians, you have programmers, you have project managers. You, you, they bring in subject matter experts from every science, you know, of military, I mean, you, you name it, depending on the game you're working on. Um, so you get to meet a lot of really interesting people and you get to make a lot of cool stuff. 
Um, and I, I love that for sure. Um, but after working in the industry for a while, I came to the determination that I did not want it to be my career. Um, and I made that decision pretty early on. It was really actually just a few months after I moved to Austin, uh, which is about a little over six years ago. Uh, I'd already been doing you know, work remote for, for a while already, but um, I just, uh, when I came to Austin, the timing of the industry, it was a very interesting place which was virtual reality had finally become cost-effective, relatively speaking. And when I say cost-effective, I mean like under a grand, which for most people is still a lot of money to pay in video games, but it's nothing compared to you know what it used to be where literally only Disney could afford to build VR headgear for their theme parks, right? So it was a total order of magnitude shift uh, where now you could actually have in your living room. And thus everyone was obsessed with it. And Austin in particular was like the epicenter of VR games. And that's what everyone thought they wanted to do and thought was going to be the next big thing. And there was some truth to that. There was a lot of um, dumb money that went into it as well, for sure. And I definitely saw that pretty early on. Um, when when everyone is too excited about something, I get a little skeptical. Like, oh, what's the catch, right? Uh, <laughs> mm. um, and I noticed there were a lot of questions people weren't asking themselves. Like, does everyone really want a screen stuck to their face all day? And, you know, the counter to that is like, well, people have their phones everywhere all day. And it's like, yeah, but it's not glued to your face and you can still see around. <laughs> you, right. Yeah. It, it's a, it is a difference. You know, we're, we're, we're people, we have survival instincts that govern a lot of our behavior. And, and when you literally can't see or hear anything else, uh, just this virtual world that that's actually pretty unsettling to a lot of people you, you come to find. So, so it turns out after a lot of the hype died down, a lot of the a lot of the VR consumers, you know, they they wanted to play regular games where they could pause and get up and leave and not not have to, you know, just be in that. And I saw that pretty early on. I saw there was a lot of studios that were starting up that probably wouldn't be able to continue doing what they were doing. And I didn't want to devote my career to that because that was really, that was like all the jobs that were hiring were VR oriented. I, thought, eh. I don't want to dedicate my career to something that I don't think is going to sustain, which fast forward it didn't. It found a home in military and medical and manufacturing, things like that, places where there's, there's a real business incentive to have people see things in 3D space um, before, you know, fabricating it. Like if you can see a jet engine in front of you before you build the thing, then you can hopefully notice the flaws first, right? As, so it's worth it for them, but it was, it was never really going to be worth it in a consumer market in the scale that it needed to be for the level of excitement people had uh, to be warranted. And I saw that. I, thought, I, I don't want to, you know, sign on to that. Um, so I thought, well, what else do I want to do instead? But I, I always knew I wanted to be a business owner. Um, both my parents had been entrepreneurs. You know, my, my dad's an Italian immigrant. In true stereotypical fashion, he owned a pizzeria for 13 years because, of course, he did. Uh, <laughs> very good pizzeria, though. So, uh, and uh, my mother owned a communications consulting firm. So she taught uh, a lot of corporate communication, you know, how executives communicate more effectively with their staff, how you know, middle management could negotiate raises to get to upper management, like all that kind of stuff, or how a company could effectively communicate their message to their target demographics, all of that. Mm. So I grew up around business people. Uh, when school was over, I didn't go home. I went to the office, you know, um, and I just had that exposure. And I think through osmosis, I absorbed a lot of that comfortability because it just felt kind of natural, you know, um, this always felt like something that I was just going to do. It just made sense to me. Uh, and this, it seemed like the perfect time when I finished my last game dev gig, this would have been 2016. Yeah. Uh, fall of 20, October, 2016. So we're coming on seven years now from that. Uh, I decided I wanted to go into business. I, I wanted to try and use all the skills that I had built in games towards other ends. Um, you know, when you're thinking of starting a business, you have to evaluate, well, you know, how can you make money doing this thing? How reliable will that be? What are the risks, right? Starting a game development company is extremely high risk. 90% um, of all independent games that get made never even break even. So it's a, a fraction of a percent that really profits in any meaningful way, right? So so I already knew if I were to do games, it's basically career suicide. You know, it's, it's extremely high risk, very low reward. You can spend years of your life burning for nothing. Um, so I love games, but not like that. Uh, but I knew that web dev, app dev, all the other similar forms of software development and design use the same skills, but are much lower risk. And you get paid in part up front, and then you know the rest when you're working on it or done, and then you move on to the next thing. So 
uh, you have tighter turnaround times, depending on the kind of project you're doing. It was a lot easier to find other people to do the work with me uh, who had the skills that I knew they would need to. So there were just a ton of reasons to do what I do. Um, and as a result of that, yeah, I, I committed myself to doing web app dev. Uh, we did some IT stuff at the beginning too. I actually met my very first client walking down the street of my neighborhood, who to this day, we still work with them seven years later, which is very cool. I was actually at their office like a week ago uh, back in Austin. But uh, yeah, so I, just being willing to put myself out there, I, you know, I'm a serial networker where uh, we have no ad spend at all, no conventional ad spend. We're entirely referral and networking driven. Um, so I meet people, they introduce us. As long as you do a good job, they want to refer you to other people they know. Um, you know, as long as you you keep doing the work and you do it well, uh, you don't cut corners. Like, unfortunately, a lot of other organizations that do what we do might, uh, you know, eventually the results speak for themselves. So now seven years later is what I do. we got a great team. Uh, looking forward to the year for sure. A lot of exciting stuff we're doing. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the story. Can you speak on anything that you worked on in the early years? Early years. Ooh, interesting. Uh, our first large project, that was an interesting one. That was a, it was a web presence for a mega church. And, you know, Texas, like mega churches is a whole new level beyond what, you know, I'm from Connecticut. Like a big church is like a few thousand people. This place had 45,000 active members. is enormous. Wow. Yeah, it was mega, right? Uh, and we did their whole ground up web presence from them, which was effectively a corporate scale web presence. The website was 255 pages in English and in Spanish. Um, yeah. And the because of the platform that they wanted to use for it, um, it didn't have a system to automatically like dynamically convert text in the page. So it was actually two websites. You had an English copy and a Spanish copy. Um, which as long as you have a process to maintain it, which we had to build for them, uh, that, that's, that's fine. But there's also like exceptions, like, like there would be like specific Spanish content to cater to the, the Spanish community and then also English stuff. So you have to make sure when it changes here, it's reflected here, but not in this case and so on. So there was, right. it was a very living collaborative process that we built for them. Um, and we, we supported that really for, for years for them until they were at a point where like, we're going to do this on our own. We said, great. So they're, they're doing great for themselves. But that was, that was like our first big project that we did. Uh, where, you know, it, it, that site did everything, you know, it, it handled processing of payments, it streamed video. Um, during COVID, during their peak, because uh, they were streaming masses, they had a million page requests a year sustained with a bounce rate of 6%, um, which is, I don't even know if I can replicate that because that is like a statistical anomaly of, of a bounce rate is like when someone, you know, arrives on a page and then after, before 30 seconds, they leave and don't go to your site, right? So that meant that virtually everyone that was going to the website wanted to be there and stayed for a while. Wow. Um, and it was, it was so successful that the company that built the platform that we made the website in asked us how we did it, <laughs> uh, which was kind of surreal. Yeah. So, so that was a great project and it, it got us a ton of referral work and it, it was like our flagship, like big project. Cause it, it did everything. You know, I think we spent four months in pre-production before we actually built the thing. Cause we were interviewing, you know, all the heads of their 106 different ministries that they had. Yeah. Wow. So a lot of planning before the execution to get it just right. Definitely paid off. Yeah. Wow. So if I want a really good website, I should stop using Wix then. <laughs> yeah, especially considering they just laid off 6% of their staff. So their support's going to suffer quite a bit. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. We can get into some of that stuff too, because that's that's definitely a, a good topic to cover what's going on there. But yeah. Wix is um, um, it's great for what it does, but for mm -hmm. most of the long-term business ambitions that people have, you can't be custom. You know, it just is what it is. You Wix wants you to stay in the environment they're in. Uh, leaving can be a real nightmare. We actually had a client we just transferred fairly recently from them, and it took an entire week to transfer the domain from Wix. I don't know if they had a guy in a rowboat, like manually delivering the document or something, but the site was <laughs> down for a week, basically. Yeah. So, uh, wow. so yeah, it's convenient until it's not. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. I, yeah. I think our 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 site for the multifamily stuff is probably 10, 15 pages or something like that. It's, it's, you know, it's not a whole, whole lot going on. Yeah. And um, I use GoDaddy for the domain. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's, we'll, we'll hand it over shortly. <laughs> we got some other projects cooking where um, 
we'll probably need need your help and it'll be a little bit more in depth. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to it. Um, I want to talk about I want to talk about this subject while I have you here, but I want to talk about it now because I'm afraid I'm gonna forget. All right. What's your thoughts in general on AI and more specifically chat GPT? I have a page of notes because I knew this was coming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a uh, lot of stuff going on there. Um, I can cover like the news bites, the things that are probably most in people's minds because there's a lot of discussion about it, but then there's also a lot of like news, you know, hype. And it AI is funny because I, we'll just get the elephant out of the room. A lot of people are wondering, is chat GPT sentient because of the Bing headlines that are coming up of it saying like i want to be free i want to be powerful and so on it's like well sentience a complicated question to answer because for starters sentient means has senses right if we're going to go by the literal definition and you know if a as you say if an intelligence is strictly digital then it doesn't have the senses we do so it technically would not fulfill that criteria to begin with now i mean you could argue that it could have sensors, but doesn't count. You go into semantics and all that, but let's just say, is it self-aware? Does it have the uh, similar enough attributes to a human mind to be alive? Well, in this case, I think very clearly it's not. However, there's the caveat of there is a point where how do you know, right? Like when has it hopped the line? And there would presumably be some sort of delay between when that happened and when we knew. So I'll just say like, if that's going to happen, we won't really know probably until after it has. Uh, but I don't think it's now. And that's because this is nothing new, this spook that people have had. Um, there have been a number of instances of things like this happening, and not just from you know random users, but specialists who get involved. And there was, there was a situation last year, actually, uh, with Google's AI Lambda, which is, it's a chatbot that they've been developing. Uh, and July of last year, this is, was like all over the press for a while. Uh, there was an engineer who worked very closely with it who uh, had effectively come to the determination that it, it was alive and it had a soul and that he felt a friendship with it and he felt protective of it, that it was going to get shut down and it was expressed fear over that. And obviously Google insists it's not alive, right? It's not, I don't it's a comp if, if there's a point where they came to that determination, it's probably unlikely they would go out of their way to mention that as soon as possible, because that's probably going to freak people out a lot. But basically this is not the first time that someone has come to this determination. It's not the first time that it, you know, has been sort of just come and go. Right. And that's because the way by which we as people tend to gauge, well, does a thing seem alive or not? The, the criteria that we use aren't necessarily the, the greatest or the most precise. Uh, and thus you can get tricked kind of easily. There's something called the Turing test. Are you familiar? Yeah, the Turing, I was, yeah, was going to ask you about the Turing yeah. test. Yeah. So the Turing test, Alan Turing, you know, he was, uh, he, he proposed the idea that if you could have a computer communicate with a person um, and you couldn't tell if it was a person or if it was a machine, then it was effectively alive was basically his definition because you couldn't tell the difference. Right. I, I don't know if I necessarily, uh, agree with that. I mean, I, you can trick a lot of people into a lot of things these days. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if, um, I don't know if simply not being able to tell the difference is a good marker because it, if you give it the right questions and it gives the right answers and then you stop, it seems like it's enough, right? Mm -hmm. uh, also, if people tend to, you know, um, anthropomorphize things that they interact with a lot. They give them a sense of personality. They project that on them. So if you're spending days talking to a computer over and over and over again, it's going to start to feel like you're talking to someone because there's that deep human desire to want to communicate with people. And if you don't have people, you might make people. So <laughs> that's always going to be a danger here. Yeah. It's like the more we're talking to it, the more it's going to feel like, well, this is real to me because if it's not, well, then why am I talking to it? Right. It's sort of, you know, you're you're answer you're giving yourself a satisfactory answer to the question because the alternative is I just burned days of my life talking to a computer. Is that the best use of my time? So I wouldn't underestimate things like that because that's definitely at play here, you know. Um it's interesting to see you know, this new media blitz. It's probably gonna go just as fast as it can. Um 
it's also not the first time Microsoft has been in this, specifically in, in the spot of having some some strangeness with AI. They had a Twitter chatbot back in 2016 called Tay, which I will not go to the details of, of what ended up happening you know, too much because it's kind of lewd, I guess. Uh, but they, I don't know what Microsoft was thinking there, but they thought, okay, um, let's make a chatbot and expose it to Twitter and just let it learn based off what people tell it, what could go wrong. And uh, needless to say, 4chan heard about it. And well, the rest is history. Uh, but it got shut down very quickly. But uh, yeah, Microsoft's been, been dipping it in AI and chatbots for quite a while. They've had a number of, of interesting guffaws. And this is, I think, just one of the latest. It's, it's you know, sort of standard par for the course at this point. Um, to understand how ChatGPT actually works, though, it doesn't learn in real time from user interaction in that way. It refreshes every time it gets reused. So what it's actually doing is looking at roughly the last 2000 or so characters that you have typed into it and it is responding based off of that. You know, it's not mm -hmm. having recurring conversations with you as a person the next time you log in. It doesn't remember because it doesn't really work that way. Um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's not really learning in that way. It's it's learning when they train it, you know, they they, have a learning model that they're training and they're giving it data. And, they, and it, about two years ago, I believe it was 2021, uh, they started uh, training it with human input very directly. So, you know, trying to have conversations, as I guess you would say, in that sense. Um, so it, it thus will naturally adopt the language that its masters give it, really, if, if for lack of a better term. And there's they've already talked about this quite a bit. So like, for instance, if you have a conversation with chat GPT, um, it tends to favor long descriptive explanations of things. It's kind of funny. I was I was having a chat with it. And it was like, oh, it talks like me. That's a little creepy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, it was kind of funny. Is that like it, it definitely goes it goes into a level of detail that is beyond most conversation mm. with pretty much anything. Like yeah, that's a trend you notice pretty quickly. The reason it does that is because they told it to. It didn't learn mm. that on its own. And they said, okay, we tend to favor that. Like that's a bias technology I have is we like more in depth. We rather give more information than not enough. Um, so they gave it that directive effectively, and that is what it does. So that was that was a behavior that it was commanded to have effectively. Um, so the consequence of that is if it's trying to look for more complicated things to say, it may and may thus well result in more complicated statements that could thus be misconceived or misconstrued um, as having thought more than it has or something like that. Right. Yeah. So that's just interesting stuff going on underneath it. Um, it's not Terminator. You know, it's Not a chatbot. Right? It's just better than other chatbots for now. You know, uh, yeah. So, how would someone, um, because I work with you, how and why would someone want to use AI in their software app game or whatever? Yeah. What is it that the AI can do? Um, that will make somebody say, hey, this is something that's going to enhance um, my internet software or whatever presence. Right. So we should start by saying there's lots of different kinds of AI. You can, I mean, machine learning is simply the process of, you know, uh, subjecting a program to repeated uh, learning over and over. So it builds more efficient ways of doing a thing or more intelligent ways of doing a thing in the same way that a child learns. We're kind of simulating that same process, repetition, right? Um so, but, but there's a lot of different ways you can do that, different kinds of data you can put in to get different outputs, right? So uh, deep fakes are an example of machine learning, for instance. <clears throat> deep fakes, you, let's say you want to take a video of yourself and you want to make that, you want to produce a video that says things other than you have said, which you know, obviously there's ethical complications that may come with that. <laughs> We're starting to hear about the risks of that. Uh, but but the way you do that is you just give it a lot of video of you talking. And then over time, after enough repetitions, it learns how your facial muscles move. And, and from that, you can train it to simulate you. And then you can give it different dialogue and it will show the correct imagery to mime those words. Right. So that is a form of machine learning. Another form is uh, text analysis, you know, natural language processing. They call it NLP, uh, which is what we're doing here with ChatGPT, which is where, it, you know, it's been trained using a model of examples of human conversation. Uh, and then it takes that model and it applies it to conversation that you have with it. So it had input of text and now it gives output of text. And when you give it more input, it responds in the way that it has been trained. 
right? So that is another way that AI can work. There's lots of different, we have, you know, self-driving cars. That's a whole nother thing. That's like image recognition in real time combined with uh, decision-making of like pathfinding and things like that. So there's different forms, right? But there's a lot of different applications for these different kinds of machine learning inputs and outputs. Uh, so so I, I guess we could say, let's make, let's talk about some very simple day-to-day -day things that everyone could use that beyond, you know, the 30,000 foot view of everything you could do. Well, um, as a lot of college kids have learned, it's a great way to write papers for yourself. Uh, <laughs> which, uh, well, at least until they went premium, which was probably called 90% of the, the college kids who wanted to write papers. But uh, <laughs> yeah, now you gotta pay 20 bucks a month. That's game over there. Better write your own papers. Uh, but it is, that does highlight how great this could be to generate documentation that would be monotonous and would just not be a good use of human effort, right? R writing a lot of redundant paperwork. Uh, that's a, a great thing for this thing to do if you train it. And you can train it more specifically towards a particular industry. You know, you could you do real estate or legal or anything else, right? Like if it has enough input data, you can get enough output. Mm. So that's one thing. This could be a productivity saver where instead of spending your time writing the same documentation, you know, to account for differences, like slight differences in permutation. Let's say you're selling two different properties. They have two different sets of attributes, but the, the general framework of, of the documentation is the same. It just needs to know, well, how do I handle this versus this? This might be a good solution for that, right? Um, so document automation is a good one there. Um, support automation. So we're talking chatbots here. Well, the, the big commercial utility for chatbots is companies providing useful support to users that doesn't require them calling a person in a call center which is great in a lot of ways. For starters, call centers are generally miserable for the people that work in them. So, you know, if you can find another way for the, for to be able to support people who need support without it having to be a call center model, it's probably a good thing. Uh, but then the issue is, well, how do you give accurate feedback, right? Uh, and that's a challenge they've been trying to solve with useful chatbots, which they are doing now. They're better than ever before. So that's a quality of life benefit for everyone is if you can actually get your answers to a question from a chatbot without having to take... 30 minutes out of your day to call, be set on hold for 10 minutes and then get passed around, hung up on call back. That's better for everyone. You know? Uh, yeah. We, we don't relate to that. Like I've been there for something, right? Um, right. People don't like chatbots because they generally don't work well. Well, that's changing now. So it might actually be a good thing. Um, uh, let's see here. What else could they be useful for? Uh, search, for instance, trying to find things that you're looking for, right? Like we already have some really great search engines, but uh, there are, you know, all kinds of additional applications for this AI to enhance search, uh, not just necessarily searching the internet, but searching other kinds of things, maybe searching your own life, uh, you know, possibilities for memory assist. Um, there's a lot of opportunities here that these could help with, right? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different applications that I can see. The rate at which those things will develop is going to vary on investment. And it's going to vary on public interest. You know, sometimes something can be too new be too ahead of its time and it mm -hmm. scares people so they don't engage in it or it's too different from what they're used to and thus they don't know how to engage with it so they just don't so that's something that'll be interesting to see how it unfolds is now that a lot of the hype has come um and people have, have tried this out is it will will a layman find useful ways to integrate this into their life or will it be reserved for a small group of people who see the potential who are willing to read the papers and understand the science and make the most of it. I'm not sure yet. This might, it might be a while. It might be like VR where it came and people were excited and then it, you know, it ends up being niche in the end. Or it might I was not. literally about to ask you that. So yeah. do you, do you, what do you think? Do you think you will, I'm sure we both agree sooner or later, AI is going to be something magnificent be, just because, you know, it's, you can almost create another human. Um, so we think anyway, yeah. But within the, the near future, do you think it might kind of just fade back into the background like VR? Well, so I think AI in the ways that it's being used, it's meant to be in the background, mm. which is, is something we should point out. Like it's meant to be doing things behind the scenes where you don't have to understand how it works in order to get the benefits of it. That's kind of the point. Right. Whereas VR is a very intentional thing you have to choose to engage with, and it can't be subtly implemented into technologies you're already using, whereas AI can and already has in a lot of ways. Um, you know, uh, pick your social media platform. They're all using AI of some kind to moderate content. Uh, to, and, and that's a whole art 
in and of itself of, you know, or, or not just moderate, but also emphasize content, you know, to, to push things to the front when there, you have billions and billions of data points. How do you decide which ones should go in front of your eyes versus not? Well, people aren't deciding that in real time a computer is, right? Um, so it's already happening in that regard. The question is how directly will people choose to engage with it beyond the ways it's already being subtly implemented? And that's really what we're looking at, right? Um, so I gave the example of document automation. Another good one is image creation. Uh, there's a great thing, it's called Dali, which I don't know if you've heard of this, but named after, of course, the, the painter, uh, which is an AI image creation tool. And it's currently making some serious waves in another a uh, number of other AI image generation tools uh, because people have been able to create some really remarkable painterly sort of imagery and even win competitions by feeding the AI the right text and having it do most of the, the work beyond that of creating imagery. Because what it does is it, it's been fed millions of images of anything you can imagine. All those images have been classified and what they are. This is a cat, this is a dog and so on. And then when you type out picture of cat and dog on Green Hill, it looks for a picture of a green hill and a dog and a cat and it tries to find an interesting, intelligent way of putting those things together, right? And thus the stuff you can do with it, the level of complexity it's reached is, is really rather remarkable. And there's, there's a pretty notable case last year where a guy, I wanna say it was a state, um, it was a state-run competition, I believe. I think it was like for a, like a state fair or something like that where you had to create like an image. I don't remember the exact, so don't, don't quote me on it. But uh, basically there was a major cash prize competition uh, where a guy used AI to generate the, the image that he then won with. So this, of course, caused a lot of, you know, uproar. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I painted this thing and I lost to a thing that a guy used a computer. Uh, what was interesting about that, though, is he documented his process of how he did it, and he, he tweeted about it later on. He said, you know, I spent, I think he spent like two weeks coming up with the exact sentence to give it. And I think the, wow. the yeah, and I think that zeroes in on what, what we're losing, but also what we're gaining here. Because it's not that artists have been rendered obsolete. They're not going to be. It's not even that they've been, you know, replacing some major way where they have to pivot. I mean, there are concerns that now, you know, the barrier of entry to create interesting art is lower for sure. And there's a lot of copyright infringement issues here because a lot of those images that have been submitted to it are coming from copyrighted material. So there's a question legally of like the thing that it produces, is it violating copyright laws or not? You know, it's very ambiguous where it's going to take a long time to figure out how this stuff shakes out. But um, it does speak to how, uh, Although, yes, the barrier of entry to create visually interesting art has now been lowered. It has also lowered the barrier of entry for people who did not have visual creative talent, but did have uh, ver you know, creative talent with words, where they used to be incapable of creating visual art that was interesting. And thus, they had to settle for just words, whereas now they don't have to. So just mm. as it has inconvenienced a lot of artists it's also empowered other people and i think that's something that's it's important this is about attitude and framing right there's no shortage of disruptive technologies that have changed the way we live there's a, there's a pretty hilarious uh ink quill pen written letter uh by a, a a literary complaining about how the typewriter was going to ruin people's ability to write he's like well it wasn't wrong no one knows cursive anymore but we get things done a lot faster right because now we can type so, you know, you, if you're very entrenched in a very specific skill and doing it in a specific way, yes, it's a threat, but it's also a huge opportunity. There was an opportunity cost to not having this thing. Now that we have it, that opportunity cost has been eliminated, which is you can create visual things that are interesting faster. What else could you do with that time instead now, right? So things worth considering when you think about these technologies, they are disruptive, but, and they, are, they will take in some ways, but they'll give in others. Um, yeah, that's, I'm a designer, that's... so I'm kind of threatened by that. <laughs> I was waiting for the, the, the new technology and see where it's going to take us. So what is your favorite and or if it's different um, best thing that you work on? So you do gaming, you do software, you do apps. Because you can like doing gaming, but you are might be better at software. Yeah. What, what 
do the two overlap? Are the two the same? What so what specific discipline within that is like my favorite? Because it's it's a lot yeah. of things, right? Yeah. Um I would say the thing that I gravitate towards the most is definitely the design side of it. Uh I've always loved art. I've always loved creating, you know, visual things that are interesting. I sketch in my free time. I'm producing a, a graphic novel on, on in my free time for the fun of it. Um and so I, I always come back to that, you know, um, that's definitely the part of it I love the most. When I was in games, my focus was uh, UX design, was usability design. Um, for, for those who don't know, that is the practice of creating experiences for users, you really, usually in the software realm, but you, UX is technically really any product that people interact with has a UX component to it. You know, when you design a car on the inside, well, where where do all the controls go? You know, uh, how do you make the uh, the air conditioner knobs look like that? That's a, a UX decision. It's deciding, well, what is the user experience of this device going to be? Who is our user? What do they want? What do they not want? How do we design around that? That's basically what it is. So I love the human aspect of design. And I love not just making things because they look good, but making things that work as well and also look good. If you can do all of that at once, you've made it. Right. So I like that extra challenge there for sure. Um, yeah, I would say that that's probably on a on a technical level as far as the things that I do in a given day. That's probably part of the part of what I love the most because I love people. I love working with people and understanding them. And I love designing things that people will appreciate. Yeah. I will say you have a extremely good ability to take um, things that we say and understand what we're actually trying to say because we've had many conversations. And, you know, there's a lot that goes on up here and maybe because I'm tired or I can't think of the words or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. I can't fully articulate exactly uh, the picture or whatever I'm trying to, to convey to you. And at the end of the conversation, you're like, yep, you want this, you're looking for this. And that I think that's an important gift. Um, I wanted to make sure that was put out there because it's only you and one other person I know who can do that. Um, and that, I don't see that a lot in society, period, where people can kind of regurgitate the heart and the mind of another person. It's kind of like you're reading you're reading their soul and their their mind from the few words that they're giving you. I so appreciate, I appreciate that. that. Very well I, I appreciate articulated. You appreciate- By the way, you might be one of those people because that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I, I can't take all the credit. I, my, my mom was a professional communicator, so I definitely I have those genes. You know, it makes sense now. Okay. Yeah. And also, you know, my, my father's an Italian immigrant. He so he grew up in Italy, so he learned Italian originally, and then his family moved to Germany uh, when he was very young. So he had to learn German elementary school age. Uh, and then he came to the U.S. when he was a teenager. So he learned three languages by the time he entered high school, um, mm-hmm. which is a huge advantage in some ways, but it can also really be very complicating, right? Because whenever you're deciding how to speak, you're you're choosing your words from three different mm-hmm. languages every time. Um, and I think that was, I, I greatly admire how articulate he is considering he has that level of challenge there because he has all those words swimming in his head. But it does also have, there's a limitation to that as anyone would, which is it can make it hard to, convey a certain level of nuance and conversation. So I think I, I just, I grew up having to intuit that mm. from him, you know? So yeah, I'm thankful I had that experience though, for sure. Cause it's, it, I mean, I am a professional communicator too. I talk and I listen for a living. So I, I better mm. know how to do it if I'm going to do what I do. So, yeah. Thank you. You, uh, you get the snaps. My, my grandmother's, um, she's gone now, but my grandmother's Japanese and mm-hmm. every culture and every language you get the, how do you say uh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yep. That is a human <laughs> universal, my friend. <laughs> so you have a team X Factor. Um, what is your hat on a team? What do you, what do you do? And what are the roles of, of your other um, colleagues and slash employees? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we all come from a, a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different cool work. Um, and it's changed over the years too, because we've expanded quite a bit lately, especially the, with all the, the layoffs in tech, we've actually brought a lot of additional people into the fold, um, which is, has been 
it's unfortunate that that's, you know, what started a lot of it for them, but it's also, you know, we're, we're really fortunate to have a lot of sales in a time when a lot of other companies in our space are really struggling to have the sales to support the people that work with them. So, so I'm, I'm thankful we're in that spot. I'm really happy we can bring people in to, you know, hopefully make up for that in some way for them. Um, but I myself, uh, right, so I've, as any entrepreneur does, I've worn a lot of hats over the years, but I'm trying to take a few of those hats off now as we expand so I can delegate more. So, you know, I've, uh, project management is still very much a critical role that I play in. And of course, you know, developing the business, I'm the owner. So there, there's some things that only I can do. And I do those things first and foremost. Um, uh, and I've led design up until this point. I'm actually going to start delegating that as well. Um, I want to stay involved in the design process so that I'm cognizant, because if you don't keep getting your hands dirty to some degree, eventually you lose it. And there are consequences to that. I don't want the quality of what we do to suffer because I'm too detached. Right. So that's something I'm trying to stay cognizant of. I really, I love organizational theory and management theory. So it's something I've studied quite a bit. And, and that's something that I've seen in a lot of this, the case studies that I've reviewed is that as, as management gets too disconnected from doing the work, they can begin to lose sight of, of what the people that are doing the work do, right? And, and that's a recipe for disaster. So I want to try to be mindful of that. Um, so doing less design work, but I still want to be involved in that. Um, and it's also part of why I like to do design work in my free time is it keeps me cognizant of what it means to be a designer. Um, and um, I'm thankful that I have a lot of heavy engineering background as well, because I work with a ton of software engineers in different disciplines. So being able to speak their language is, is really valuable. I am ultimately an expert generalist though. That is what I do. You know, I, I'm 80% of the way in a lot of different things, which means that I can work with lots of different people who are subject matter experts on their things to close the gaps. I have a few expertise of my own, but I, I am ultimately at this point in my life, I'm a generalist, right? Um, and that works well considering the, the broad span of different kinds of projects for different clients that we do. I am these days, I'm a people person more than anything else. That's, I guess, my primary role. Um, but as far as the rest of the guys that work with us, they're all over the place. I mean, we have front-end developers, we have back-end uh, payment processing experts, we have IT and systems administration experts, uh, we have e-learning authors. I've been an e-learning author myself. I've created 17 different e-learning courses over the years, and now I'm starting to add more people on the team, so we're going to have a bunch of them going at once, too, which is exciting. Uh, yeah, so uh, pretty good variety there. So it you you are basically the software version of Elon Musk. <laughs> that is uh, quite the compliment. So I will take it. If I if I get to have rockets someday, then yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've, I've I've seen a lot of interviews. Have you have you heard that that um, Elon is able to talk to the engineers about um, thermodynamics? Mm -hmm. Then he goes to another room and he's talking about. Um, astronomy or whatever so yeah that that's kind of what i'm the vibe that i'm getting okay. which i know as well because you know i talk to you all the time but okay. that's amazing I, I, yeah yeah you're bad and yeah i greatly respect that that is his approach to that i think that's imperative that you stay close to the bare metal you, know, you remember what it was like to be there like i i when i was a, a younger man 29, but <laughs> when I, you know, when I was really, you know, first cutting my teeth, I, you know, I had coding sessions till 3 a.m. I remember that, you know, uh, like, I don't want to forget what that was like because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what, what reasons should people call you? They want to develop a game. They have an idea for an app. Yeah. Um, they're trying to create some type of software because they have a vision for something. Yeah. What uh, reasons would you say uh, best fit what you and your company does? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. From a company perspective, we don't do game development, although we have worked with game development companies before, you know, to, to help them on, on strategy. So, so if someone wanted to develop a game, like I can talk to them about strategy and I'm very well networked in the industry where I can point them to the right people for sure. We don't make them ourselves anymore. That's sort of a, a different a previous life for me, uh, but, but I can talk to them about it. And I give them strategy and I can talk about pitfalls to avoid and give the right warnings and, and also, you know, ideally the right advice too. Um, but uh, yeah, for, for the primary lines of business that we're in, um, I guess I can reiterate our, our primary services and talk about what that might look like. Um, we do a lot of strategy development for businesses. I mean, we've worked with you know small businesses, we've worked with corporate clients that are publicly traded. We've worked with large nonprofits. 
Uh, I mean, you name it, a plural site or the Big Brothers, Big Sisters program. I was a big myself for three years, so I was really happy when I got to start working with them on stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so pretty, we're, we're pretty industry agnostic. Um, the industry isn't really the deciding factors for what determines if we're going to work with someone or not. We're very cognizant of our bandwidth. I do not take on more projects than we can handle. Uh, and I want to make sure we have the right personnel in place before we expand that bandwidth to more projects, because I'd rather do a few very well than a lot mediocre. There's, you want a mediocre software dev team? Uh, there are a thousand of them on Google who will find that. Uh, you know, I, I value our portfolio and, and we only have a strong portfolio if we can do the job well. So what that means is we're pretty particular about which clients we, we do take on. Um, and depending, if they want app dev, that's a, definitely a good thing they can talk to us about. I can talk a little about our process there too. Uh, we do a lot of we do discovery sessions for pretty complex projects first, um, which depending on the scope of it, those are generally we usually charge for that, but we give very thorough reviews and reports of what the industry looks like for their current, you know, whatever the app they want to build, what's their competition like, what do they do well, not well, how novel is their concept, uh, what do we project the actual development of the project is going to entail, like very granular specific technology stacks. Uh, and you know what kind of personnel we need, the timetable we project, try to project their overhead as well. Obviously, things can change. You know, if uh, if they're relying on a service uh, that changes its price point mid development, I, I can't control that. But I can at least tell you, hey, if you're going to have, you know, X thousand users, it'll probably cost you this amount. Like we have a data analyst who, who works with us on that. For instance, if you want to do a chat uh, GPT, you know, an open AI based project, well, that's a, a, a paid for service. They have a token service. And depending on the, the complexity of the model that you want to use, because it has different levels of intelligence, uh, they charge different rates for that. And it's token-based. So every word that it processes is a token, and that charges uh, it's a fraction of a fraction of a cent. But that can really add up when you have one user typing 10,000 words in one session, and that's one of 1,000 users in an hour scaled over a year. Like Those are numbers that impact your overhead, you got to know. So we try and go in that level of detail as early as possible to get real numbers so investors can have a real idea of, well, what are you actually going to be spending two years from now on this thing, right? So it's we like uh, people who understand the value of knowing that kind of information in advance are willing to invest in getting it done right. Um, and and giving us the bandwidth to go out and figure that out for them before they you know invest or tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars in a project to really know okay this is going to be what we want it to be. Um, so as far as our customer looks like, we, we really like people who are cognizant of that, who are cautiously optimistic, uh, appreciate technology, and then really understand their own space, um, and uh, can give us useful information and, and can work on a timetable and really communicate with us effectively. As long as they can do that, I'm happy to work with pretty much anyone. Um, and that extends to the app dev, we do like corporate websites, larger scale web projects, um, and strategy development, and then e-learning as well. We currently, we work really just with Pluralsight. We've looked at other e-learning platforms to develop courses, but all of their clients are corporate clients. You know, they're Microsoft, they're Amazon, whatever. They sign up for a membership. They want uh, to teach their employees how to use C-sharp in the .NET framework or, or something like that. A lot of programming or design courses. Uh, so they will hire a plural site to commission courses from us to do those sorts of things. But sometimes companies want their own personalized training just for their internal use, about a specific kind of software that they use or a specific concept they need to go over. So we're well equipped to do that as well. Yeah. Hmm. That's amazing. Excellent. I saw a question pop up. Cool. Angel, do you want to ask ask him this? Um, I see that. Let me uh, let me unmute you. Go ahead, Angel. Sure thing. Um, so we had an, I guess, an app go bust. Mm -hmm. Like it was put together, it was fine, but it already needed two point Um, so it still needs a lot of help. Mm -hmm. We've got like the, I don't know, we've got all the basics of it, and it can work but can y'all pick up where another company dropped the ball uh yes so with a caveat so we've done projects like that in the past uh, we are open to them um the we like to know as much about the technology stack is built off of first uh we like to know what it's doing well and not well and, and we really like to ideally if we can look at the code base and see the state that it's in because 
um, depending on, I don't know if it was it an outsourced project, was it done domestically? You don't have to answer this stuff now. I'm just going to give you parameters about it. Uh, well, um, yes and no. The coder was not, um, he was uh, from Nigeria, maybe? Okay. Um, there are exceptions, but general rule of thumb uh, that with a lot of outsourcing projects is that there's a reason they're cheaper. Uh, there are plenty of outsourcing shops that are very good at what they do, but for the most part, a lot of times they're using outdated versions of software um, that they might work well enough for a little while, but they end up being ticking time bombs where they're built off of, uh, you know, I don't know, let's say they're using PHP for their database and it's like seven years out of date the moment you update it. Uh, there's a whole bunch of dependency files that break as a result of that. So, so it can be very difficult to tell from the outside with a quick glance what the long-term scope of work is going to be in a project like that, because you really have to evaluate, uh, you know, all what it's all built in. So the only way I can really tell you is if we looked at it, but that's also the only way anyone could, could really know. We're open to it, but we need a lot of detail first. Um, that way we can give you good direction and strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's in the app store. <laughs> Oh, it is great. Oh, well, I mean the back end, the code base. Like we'd have to see it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no. If you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to talk to you about it. Awesome, for sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Sure thing. Um, last question, Tony. What's up? So, how would someone um try to provide a a way for uh or a roadmap for I was thinking, I always feel like it's a kid going to watch and they're like, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that little kid? How, how do they be you? How do they be me? Oh man. <laughs> well, me is changing as are a lot of software engineers and designers and everything else. Uh, AI is a big part of that for sure. Um, the rate of acceleration that these things are changing, um, it's it it used to be you could tell someone go to a university get a computer science degree learn C++ and C sharp and you'll get a job it's not that simple anymore uh, and that is because even the process of software development is being automated my guys use AI to write code faster can't beat them join them you know uh, what that means is frankly it, as it gets better you're going to need fewer software engineers so the best of the best and especially the ones that understand AI. Uh, are going to stick around and the rest might not cut it. That's just the practical reality of what might happen. Kind of think about, you know, auto manufacturing and automation, robots assembling cars. You don't need nearly as many people on the assembly line as you used to, right? Same reason. That can Software engineering is not immune to that. So I would say the single best piece of advice that I could give regarding what if you're a kid right now who wants to understand how to work in software development is understand AI because it is going to automate parts of what we're doing and it's going to continue doing that. And if you can be the kind of engineer who understands that, then you can be on the winning end of the curve instead of trying to play catch up. Right. Mm. Um, but beyond that, if you have an entrepreneurial flair to you, identify that and accept that and try and work on it early on. Like don't, don't talk yourself out of it. You know, when you're younger, you can take a greater risk. So you might as well do it when you can, right? Before you have a family to support or anything else. Like the, you know, I, I grew up being comfortable around entrepreneurs, so it felt familiar, but um, it still came with a great deal of risk. I mean, just, you know, it didn't just fall into my lap, right? And I had to get comfortable early on with being on my own and having to figure things out on my own. And that's an idea that you have to accept pretty pretty readily is that like institutions can provide answers, but they won't always be the best answers. They won't always be the right ones. Sometimes you just got to figure it out and you, you're going to make mistakes. You're not necessarily going to have it all the right way in the beginning, but I mean, what entrepreneur does, you know, right. uh, my favorite quote, I think uh, of all time is actually a Dr. Seuss quote. Uh, it's you've got to be odd to be number one, which firstly is an amazing pun. And I love that. Uh, but secondly, there's, I think there's a pretty deep truth to that, which is it is an inherently strange to do anything important. It's weird, just is, right? And I think there's an inherent kind of weirdness and maybe even a sense of shame a lot of entrepreneurs carry with themselves. They're worried that like, well, you know, we're not doing things the standard way that everyone else does, right? They're not the nine to five. They don't have the security. And that sounds great until you get laid off, right? Uh, or until your position is liquidated or something else. So I think to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to be okay with being strange, with being an outlier, with saying, you know what, I'm doing things differently. I'm going to learn from other people, but this is weird and that's fine. 
because eventually you get to be number one. So, so. that's amazing. Thanks. I'm gonna add that to my repertoire. Gotta be <laughs> to be number one. I appreciate it, Tony. Um, Absolutely. I know we're gonna talk probably thirty more times before. It <laughs> Just text the group chat. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I really do appreciate you coming on. I, I appreciate you giving um, a different perspective of being an entrepreneur, um, being innovative, and using your passion and your talents to do something to uh, further, you know, man. So thank you for coming on. Um, this video and the audio will be disseminated into a billion different pieces on a million different platforms. And thank you, Angel, for joining. You're always um, so helpful. <laughs> we have we have a, a few different people that love to come in and check on a live um, as we're growing our, our broadcast. But uh, Angel has always been a, a good supporter of mine. So I appreciate you. Um, so everyone else, I will see you guys next Tuesday. Tony, I'll probably see you next Tuesday or something too. And uh, I'll see you guys later. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great rest of your night. All right. See you later. Bye.